Well, good morning again. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ephesians. If you have a Bible that looks like this, it'll be on page 976. Um, I was aware that we have some large print Bibles for, for those who might need large print Bibles, and I was reading out of that last uh, Sunday. Page 976 in the uh, blue Bible. Before, before I read this, just a, a little bit of a reminder, both in the series that we're in and just where we were last week, but we're going through the book of Ephesians, and again, it's our habit to take a book of the Bible and, and go through it as we can to gather its context, but also to preach God's Word for us this day, and not my own um, interests or hobbies, and so we um, are marching through the book of Ephesians, and we're in chapter 2, and we've stayed in this portion of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10 for two weeks. This is the second week. And this is Paul's uh, version of the church before and the church after. And last week we looked at who we were before God made us alive with Christ, which is in verse 5. And there were three things that Paul spoke of here. He, he talked about the world, he talked about the devil, and he talked about the flesh as to uh, what we were subject to, what we were in bondage to because of our sin. And then because of that, we were, um, by nature, objects of wrath. For Paul, this is all of humanity, but it is also the church before, again, as I said, God made us alive with Christ. And so now, Paul wants to look at what we are after He's still on this thread of talking about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That's back in chapter 1, verse 19. It is his prayer, actually, now for the church in Ephesus to know God's power, but also to have it move them to praise and thanksgiving. But if who the church was before was dead in our trespasses and sins with no hope to save themselves, who is the church after? And this is... This is where Paul goes for the rest of this section. Um, I will read again verses 1 to 10, but we will be focusing on verse 10 to verse, or verse 5 to verse 10. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word as we look at who the church is after. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse four, but God, being like, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for 
good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we pray now that as we have just read it and as we um, think about it this morning, we pray that your spirit would lead us to understanding. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we could see and hear things, otherwise we, we could not. Um, and would you do this uh, not just for our benefit or so that we can walk away he, here feeling uh, good about ourselves, but would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the church after is three things. These aren't your points yet, but it's three things. The church after, as we just read, is a church that is alive, it is a church that is saved by grace, and it is a church that is saved for good works that reflect God's work in us. Last week, I talked about um, one of those shows, I think it was, I'm positive it was on the Discovery Channel. Uh, it was a car show where a person would go out and find this beat up car that they're looking for. In this case, it was some pickup truck, a 40s or 50s truck, had a tree growing out of the engine block way off in the field somewhere. And uh, as he walked around and looked at it, he knew what it was, and more importantly, he knew what it was supposed to be. And then, of course, as the show goes on, they take the, take the truck home, repairs it, orders parts that it needs, polishes this down, puts new paint on it, and then, you know, the payoff at the end rolls the truck out, and it's brand new. It's fully restored. When we talk about the church after the church after God has made us alive with Christ, which is the church now, right? The Bible doesn't give the picture here of God sort of taking of this once plan of creation and, and, and making human beings and then they fell and then he kind of scraps it and he just does something else. What he does, as far as we see in this text, is he stays with the plan and he takes his creation that has fallen and he redeems it. He recreates it back to its restored purpose. That's Paul's point here. That's the 30,000 foot view. This is what he does and it's by grace that he does this. It is for the purpose to reflect the one who then made us this way. Who the one who made us alive the one who gave us the salvation, it is to reflect him, it is to bring glory to the artist as their masterpiece, as it were. That is the main purpose for the salvation that Paul has for us in this text. And I wanna go through verses five to 10 as best as we can, because there's so much in here, looking at really those three things, I guess, now that I think about it, but I wanna put them in the form of a question. Um, as we go through here. There's so much, it's hard to figure out where, where, where to start, but here's where we're gonna start with who the church is after. It is to look at why God saved us. It is to look at how we are saved, and it's to look at the purpose of God saving his church, right? And I'll probably say this a few more times, but this is, this is foundational for Paul. This is foundational for Paul for moving, I guess you'd be this way through the letter as we continue on, not back, but moving forward but it's foundational for Paul for the church, for Christians. He never leaves this place, 
And he instructs the church to never leave this place either. This is why God has saved us. Um, let's look at that. Why God has saved us, um, how God has saved us, and the purpose for that. So first there, why God saved us. If you look in, at the text there, beginning in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. According to Paul, God saved us. God made us alive here. He rescued us, right? He did all the things that we talk about when we talk about salvation. He did it, why? Because he loved us. Because of the great love with which he loved us. That's it. It's because he loved us. It is an act of mercy, as Paul writes, as the text says, because we, what, deserved wrath. Naturally, we just got done talking about that. We were objects by nature, we were objects of God's wrath. And so in mercy, God, what? Made us alive again. Mercy is a form of God's love to the Christians in Ephesus and to Christians today. God didn't have to do this. Let's make that really clear. He didn't need the Christians in Ephesus in order to feel good about himself or in order to, to be fully God. God doesn't need anything. He saves because of the great love with which he loved them. Okay, now, when we think about the reasons that we do things, right? This is the why, according to the text, God saved us because he loved us. But when we think about the reasons for which we do things, and let me just give you sort of three to sort of blanket the crowd. Like, why will I donate canned goods next Saturday at the Trunk or Treat for the College Park Community Food Bank why will, I, why will I do that? Or maybe the decision of why will I put my kids in this specific uh, educational system, public, private, homeschool, no school. Or why did I choose to text that person and tell them how thankful I am for their friendship? When we think about the reasons that we do things, there is typically a dominant motive, right? There's a dominant reason why we do this. I want to bring canned goods because I want to help others who need help in this world. I want my child to be schooled this way because this is the type of education I want for them. Whatever it is, there's always a dominant motive or dominant reason. But, and you know this as I say this, there are also what? Sub-reasons. Right? Or ulterior motives, as we might say. Right? I could be donating canned goods because it is a good, good thing to do to care for the poor, but right, I, I could be doing it because it makes me feel good about myself. Mixed emotions about that. Which one's real? Which one's not? All right, I, I could be choosing to put my kids in this type of educational system because it's the best education for them, but it also aligns with my values and how I want people to think about me. Not necessarily bad or good, just saying there are other things mixed in there with that that, that that can be confusing, right? I might have texted my friend how much I value their friendship because I do value their friendship, but I'm actually afraid they might start to not like me if I don't shower them with praise and kind words. See, we, we have dominant motives. There's no doubt about it. But, but as creatures... As human beings made in the image of God, we also have ulterior motives. That I could probably 
Probably you could go ahead and say that there are products of the fall that creep in, that, that muddy the waters at some point in time, or even like these are both good, like the dominant motive and the ulterior motive, but you know, it's just, there's, it's hard to figure out what is the main reason as to why I am doing any one thing. Now, if you don't resonate with that, I am so sorry. I have failed completely to illustrate the point, which is this. God never, never has ulterior, ulterior motives for why he does what he does. So when you read that God did this because of the love that he had for us, because he loved us, there isn't anything creeping into the side here of, well, okay, maybe, maybe I'll do this just to make some people happy. Maybe I'll do this because I don't know if I do love them, but, but, but my, you know, the second member of the Trinity has gone to such great lengths to secure their salvation, I'll go along with it. And I love them because of what Christ has done. No. This is where we are different than God. One of the reasons for sure. <laughs> there are many. He doesn't have ulterior motives in this way. He does this because he loves and when he says he loves that is what he means and I start here because if you're like me I do let all of my indecision uh, and, and all of the, 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 the second, second and third tier motives of the reasons that I do things and even my cynicism and my skepticism creep in especially when I hear that word love which now that I think of it, that's a very interesting another sermon. Why, why do I do that? And so when I come to texts like this, I find it important for us to labor here to say what may be clear to some, but I, I, I doubt it, but let's, let's make it clear that this is the reason. Have you done business with that? Do you believe that? Do you think that there's some other reason why he's about to do all the things that Paul's about to unfold here other than the love that he has for you? Don't leave this place. Don't leave this place. This is why God saves us. This is why he saved the Christians in Ephesus. This is why he saved the Christians at Walls Presbyterian Church. That's why he saved the Christians and will for, for all eternity. Because of the great love with which he loved. Mark Jones in his book, God Is, a devotional book to the attributes of God, says this in the chapter, God is love. He says this, his love, referring to God's love, is best described as an affection a love that arises inwardly and extends outwardly. His love is not a passion, as if something causes God to love. His love to others is caused by himself. If someone is pleasing to God, it is because God has made that person pleasing to himself according to his love and grace. His love to others is caused by himself. That might sound strange, but it's actually pointing to how pure God's love really is. This may sound funny to say how emotionally stable God is. 
how not insecure God is. His love to others is caused by himself because all love flows from him. So when Paul says God saved us because of the great love with which he loved us, there is no pure form of that word. There is no mixed emotion or ulterior motive. It is love in its purest form. And this is where he starts as he begins to move forward with who the church is after. Paul's point here and throughout this section is to drive home the why behind God doing anything to rescue and save us. And that begins and ends with his love. He loved us. This is why God made us alive. This is the first point. If this is why God made us alive, let's ask the question, how? How is this going to happen? And that's where Paul goes. How does God save us? How does he make us alive? By grace. Three different times between verses five to eight, he is going to use this word grace. Why is, the, the why it, um, for God's salvation is his love expressed in his mercy in verse four, and the how is his love expressed in his grace through verses five to eight. Look, but look at verse eight. This is really just the summary statement. We, it's a life verse. I've said that several times. If you highlight or underline in your Bible, do that here. For by grace you have been saved. There it is. This is through faith. All right, we receive this. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All of this is not your own doing. All of this is the gift of God, according to the Greek. So how are we saved? Again, according to the text, by grace. John Stott says it this way, the entire 10-verse section here in view here, here's what we are by nature, but now here's what we are by grace. You think of it that way. Here's what we are by nature, here's what we are by grace. Thus God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. It is essential then to hold both parts of this contrast together, namely that we are by na- namely what we are by nature and also what we are by grace. The human condition and divine compassion, God's wrath and God's love. We have defined grace in the past as merit in the face of demerit. Grace is not just getting something you didn't deserve as if God sort of just surprises us with a gift and we're thankful that he did that and, oh, this is nice. (laughs) That's not what biblical grace is. Biblical grace is receiving the gift that you once actually, just to kind of carry this out a little bit further, threw back in his face and said, I don't want to have anything to do with this gift or anything to do with you. This is what it means uh, to go back to the past, the first three verses of this text that Paul was talking about. This is what it means for us to be, by nature, objects of wrath. We have 100% fallen in line with Adam, our, you know, our representative that we talked about last week, and we have taken on that family likeness and rejected who God is. We don't blame Adam. We don't blame Satan. The Bible blames us for this, which makes his gift of grace even more that precious. But this is, this is what 
Um, this is who we were, right? That's, that's who we were. We were dead in your trespasses and sins and by nature objects of wrath. That's what grace is. If we go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 8 to 10, just listen to a similar language, but just so you hear it in a different way. Paul says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, get better, start doing things that God likes. It was while we were sinners, the text says. For if while we were enemies, Paul says, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again, we are saved by grace, a form of God's love, where we receive merit in the face of demerit. And this is important for Paul and the rest right, of the letter moving forward because grace ensures several things, but it ensures this, that salvation is solely a work of God alone. And, and how, how is this? Well, only God can create something out of nothing. This is the creation account back in Genesis 1. But as, as we travel through here, right, only God can, can create new life from something that is dead. So Paul's already started with you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now we get to the antithesis of that, but now you're alive. And even down in verse 10, as we're just peeking ahead, we're going to be his workmanship, which is his work of art. It's what he's created. So all of this creation language is, 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 is infused into the text here by Paul because the main point for Paul harkens back actually to a lot of things in the Old Testament. But I'm going to pick one, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but this is Ezekiel has this vision of this valley of dry bones. And in the vision, Ezekiel is taken into this valley that is completely dead, i.e. the valley of dry bones. That's all that's there. And it's a, it, is a, it is a picture of Israel's spiritual condition here. But in this valley, um, God, bring, that God brings Ezekiel to, um, says to him, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is then instructed to prophesy over the bones in the, in the, in the text. And by the power of God, the bones are what? Raised up? They are covered in flesh. Actually, now think about a really good story for October Halloween coming up. And with God's command, they're actually given breath. And this isn't, this isn't in and of itself anything new in the sense of, of, yeah, God is the creator God. He made life. Right? But there's a death here that he also has to make life out of nothing again as well. That's the spiritual death. And so this is painted for us here in this text, in this story in Ezekiel 37, and this vision of what God promises to do, which is a promise to do this in Christ for those who believe. He will take what is dead spiritually and give it life. And this is what Paul is essentially going through here in chapter 10, or chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. He's retelling this vision, right? But what is that picture of? Just to come back and state the obvious. It is a picture of creation, a picture of God's power, as the giver of life, right, can these bones come to life is the rhetorical question that Ezekiel is given. No, they can't. Not in, not in and of themselves. Ephesians, Paul is essentially saying, can you make yourself come to life? No. Life only comes from one place, whether it's physical or spiritual, and that is from God himself. This is Paul's point, and this is why God's salvation is by grace alone. Only God can do this. And if it's not by grace, 
Right? Then you are, are in some way doing something that the Bible is saying over and over you're incapable of doing. You're a valley of dry bones. But God must redeem, recreate, restore into what you once were. And how does he do this? He does it by grace. Now, why would Paul go to such lengths here to communicate this? Again, three times he wants to use this word. Why tell the Ephesians three times, just in case you didn't get it, this is all by grace? Well, as I said at the beginning, this is foundational for much of where Paul's going. And one of the things that this, that this letter is, is, is about, that we'll see, is about the unity in the church moving forward. If Christians are not saved by grace, Christians then what? Have something to boast about. And if you have something to boast about in yourself, then you aren't boasting in Christ. And that would create disunity. But the unity that he will point them to roots itself, begins, has its foundation in this doctrine right here. That all salvation comes from God, comes from the love of God, and is by grace alone. So that no one may boast. Paul is setting up everything he is going to say here later in chapters 4 to 6. And it all begins and it ends with grace. It's why we talk a lot about it up here. Because the Bible talks a lot about it. it, it it's a big deal. I don't know how else to say it. Um, but it is how we are saved, right? We do good works by grace. Why? Because only grace ensures that salvation is solely a work of God alone. Many refer to this uh, grace as the grammar of the gospel. I don't know if you've heard this before. And what is the grammar of the gospel? It is the indicatives that come before the imperatives. Indicatives are truths. This is what's true about you. The indicative truth about somebody, I have blue eyes, right? Or um, whatever's true about you, just fill in the blank, right? This is who you are. Then there's imperatives, which is do this. It is imperative that you do this, right? That's grammar for you, you grammar junkies out there. The grammar of the gospel is that the imperatives always come before the indicatives. Who you are, according to Scripture, according to God, is always first before he asks you to do anything. And if you want a good example of that, look at Ephesians. We are already in chapter 2, and Paul has told you, he's told the Ephesians, to do nothing. Let me rephrase that. He, is, he has not told them to do anything. Have you noticed that so far? Everything Paul has been talking about has been indicative, indicative, indicative. Here's what's true. Here's what God did. Here's what's going on. Here's what's true. The first imperative we'll come to will actually be uh, in the next verse, in the next section, which he tells us to remember. But what does he tell the Ephesians to remember? <laughs> Don't remember where you came from. <laughs> it isn't until verses, or chapters 4 to 6 that he begins to tell them what to do. And I think that's wonderful. Just this book alone, right? Three full chapters of this is who you are, this is who you are, followed by three full chapters of now this is what you do, this is what you do. And I, I, I think it's obvious why he does this, but I, I want to state the obvious as much as I can. If we don't get the grammar right, as it were, then we're going to miss out on the purpose. 
If we're not working out of what is already true about us, and this is his message to the Ephesians, if you're not working out what is true about you, that is that you have been saved by grace, and this is because God loves you and, and there's no other reason for it, then your works will not move into the purpose that he's about to get to, which is to reflect the story of grace itself. If we reverse these things, right? If we, if we live in a world where, where what, what happens first is we are to do in order to be loved by God, if we are to do things in our lives in order to receive those wonderful indicative truths from chapter one and here in chapter two, then you will no longer be God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I'm gonna keep talking about this because Paul does. This is massive. This is the foundation, again, for everything going forward for him. It, but he doesn't want the Ephesians to leave this either, which is to say he doesn't want the church to leave this. You don't graduate from this. I don't graduate from this. I stay right here in the grammar of the gospel. That it is, it is, it is because of these indicative truths that the Bible showers over me because of Christ that I begin to move out into the world to do good works. And that in and of itself is by grace. Because why? I was dead. And now I am made alive. You see it, you see the point, this is where he's going. And, 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 it, and it moves right into this last section here, which I will skip ahead for the purpose. So why, why has God saved us? He loves us. How has he saved us? By grace. How does this grammar, how, why is this so important to move into the purpose? It's so that we might reflect the story. That we might reflect his work in our lives. Not our work in our lives. The first thing that we read here about the purpose of salvation comes to us in verse 7. That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. It's wordy, it's a mouthful. Again, all of this is still one sentence for Paul beginning in verse 1. What does that mean? It means that one, the first purpose according to this text, the first thing that, that Paul is beginning to point us to is the purpose for your salvation is that the kindness of God might be put on display and made known to you. That's it. That you might see and know the kindness of God. I'll be honest, that's not what I thought was gonna be the purpose. Sounds a little needy. What does this mean? And it's so important. The coming ages here for Paul is saying, what, what Paul is saying here is, is the final age, right? The final age of when Christ returns. And when that happens, right, all those made alive, all those raised up and seated in the heavenly places together with Christ, as he just got done saying, they will see and they will know and they will understand the fullness of God's grace, the very grace that brought them to himself in the first place. What he is telling the Ephesians is that you will know God's kindness in the fullest capacity possible because you will know his grace in the fullest capacity possible. Let me go a little further. 
you will know it, you will know in a fuller capacity the extent of your sin. You will know in a fuller capacity the extent of your rebellion towards God. You will know the cost of, of redemption in its fullest extent. You will also know in a fuller capacity what, the love of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all that move to rescue you. You will know what it means for Christ to have come and died for your sins in the fullest capacity that you will be able to know those things. You will see the bigger picture in ways that you and I cannot see it now. And what will happen in that moment? Eternal praise. Consider, consider any aha moment that you have in your life, right? Consider any time that the pieces fell together for you that shed more light on a situation than before and caused you to respond in pure joy because, well, I, I see it now. This is starting to make sense to me. That's what Paul is pointing his audience to. as the one of the purposes for their salvation, that they may know God's kindness and the immeasurable riches of his grace. Everybody in here has those questions right now. Why did this happen in my life? We talk about it a lot up here. There's nobody here that has somehow dodged uh, the bullets of the fall, the tragedy of death, the questions and the scars that you carry and you will carry with you to your grave, the way God made you, the way God, God orchestrated this world, the way he allowed things to happen, right? These are the questions of our, of our generation, if I could say that. And what he's actually saying here is there, there's coming a time where you're gonna be brought into the knowledge of this because you're gonna understand how grace works in the fullness of its capacity and what it's going to do is reflect the kindness of God in every single way and manner. And when that happens, you will not be able to stop with your rejoicing and your praising God. Right? It, it will be right an eternal euphoria of praise and joy because we see it, we understand it, and the more we see it and we understand it, the more we rejoice in the joy and join in the chorus of the seraphim who sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I don't know if that gets you excited, but I get a glimpse of it and I, and I begin to understand what Paul is saying. There's dignity here for you in this, by the way, as one of the purposes for his salvation, that he longs for you to be together with God and his people and, and to be able to, in one sense, because we, this is all about being together, to be shown what it is to know the fullness of God's plan and to know the fullness of God's plan is to know his kindness is grace to you. And that will echo on into eternity. I, there's no point in trying to describe that, but that's what that is saying. That we will hear this and know this and, and okay, yes, I got it. And all of that, all of that will go back to praise because of the kindness of God will be revealed. But there is yet another purpose here and we all are waiting on it. Verse 10 we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Again, note the creation language here, as I said. We are his workmanship, or literally that which is made. We are his handiwork, if you want to use that word. His work of art, right? His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. John Stott again says, salvation then is creation, recreation, new creation. And creator language is nonsense unless there is a creator. Paul will get into the specifics of these works in the second half of his letter. But here's what we want to take away so far. Notice the before and the after here. Once or before you walked in this way, you walked in deadness because of the sins and because of your sins and trespasses. But now look at how you walk. By grace, you walk in the goodness of these works that God has prepared for you to do. This is the before and after church. Before I close this final point, what do you imagine the Christians in Ephesus are thinking at this point when they hear this? And they, had, they, they would have heard this before from Paul for sure, but let's attempt to hear it from their perspective, right? A perspective in this day and age that would come from a culture that would worship many gods, not just one, a culture that looked at religion as a coin toss in one sense, right? Maybe if I go to the temple or if I pray to this God and I give this gift and offer this ritual, then maybe the gods will hear me and give me favor. In other words, there would be no understanding that the deities as they were, right, that you prayed to cared about you personally or were interested in a relationship with you to any extent. Your only hope is that you didn't do something to make them mad. But certainly, certainly the gods did not have you in mind in their sovereign plan for the cosmos. Yet, here's Paul telling them, you're not only in the plan, what? You are the plan. A plan that scripture speaks of that says, I have redeemed you for the purpose of being the very masterpiece that reflects the heart of who I am and what I am about. Were you dead? Yes. Did you have any hope apart from me? No. Did you deserve mercy? No. Did you receive mercy? Did you receive grace? Yes. And to the Ephesians who are hearing this, it's Paul now saying, now you know. Now you know. And I want, I want you to hear that too. Now you know. This is who you were, but this is who you are now. And because you know, everything changes, Ephesians. And you are now equipped to reveal that same grace and mercy and love and kindness to the world as redeemed and restored creations in the way that you what? Love others. The way that you love your neighbors, the way that you love your families, the way that you love your enemies. There's no mystery here as to what these works should be. 
And I think we complicate this a little bit because we try to figure out exactly what is the will of God. And Paul doesn't use that language. He says, he's prepared these for you. Let's not overcomplicate this. One of the ways he's prepared this for you is that as grace, as you see it, right, as, as your eyes are open to the story of who you were before, this work is naturally going to come out in you. That's the Spirit's promise. Paul's not telling the Ephesians, hey, you need to go, you need to go start your own riots. Let's make some signs. Let's tell these Ephesians they're going to hell. Let's get, let's get, let's get in there. That's not the plan. He's also telling them, like, you don't need to fear this either because you're seated with me in the heavenly places, by the way. All you are to do is to reflect the very work that I have done in you in this new creation. That's it. At least till verse 10. This gets played out in a thousand different ways, but that's, that's the game plan that's the story we are as the church to promote, to reflect to the world the very grace that God has poured into us to redeem us. And I'm going to give you a little bit of, of to-do here, okay? We can't leave here without something to do. Two, two major notes that get played when this song gets in. When you see it and you now know it, and it's the note of humility, and it's the note of gratitude. Those two notes together play the song, tell the story. They are the works that God has prepared ahead of time. When we talk about humility, it's because why? We go back to the beginning, you didn't deserve this. I didn't deserve this. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, yet God made me alive. That's grace, that's humility. This naturally comes out the more that we keep one foot in the church who we were before. I will add this note here, special application. I think one thing this can mean for us today in our time and place, for the church, for Christians, and I'm trying to say this the best way that I can, is that we, as we engage culture, for example, as we engage our neighbors, we stop demanding dead people to not live as though they are dead. They don't know it. And you know what? You didn't know it either. Until what? Until God made you alive with him. I didn't know it either. And while that brings forth a, a host of emotions, that main note is humility. And you know what's attractive? Humility. That's the first note, but we don't stay there. What's the second note? It's gratitude because of who you are now, the after. Did, go back through that eight, 10 times this week. You'll hear something new every single time. You are made alive you are raised and you are seated with Christ. I can't begin to tell you what that should do for us on a day-to-day -day basis. And especially where we came from, that this is where we are now and that we also get to play a part in this, that he hasn't trashed us, but he's restored us to do what, what we were originally created to do. It's his creation. 
reflect his story, his glory, his grace in us. That is what we are called to do. Those are the notes that we are to play. Why does God save you? Because he loves you. How does God save you? By grace. For what purpose? To tell the story. To tell the story in the way that you live as grace continues to get worked in you to be your story, one that pours forth humility and gratitude because you are saved by grace alone. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, in, in some ways, would, would, would you transport us back to Ephesus to hear this and be reminded of this? And if we veer it off, bring us back. If we've, if we've, we've hungered for other things, that's great. Let us feast here in your gospel of goodness, your truth. And while this brings questions and brings discernment and wisdom into the arena that you take us to on Monday morning, to the world. How does this apply? Would we trust that you have actually prepared these works ahead of time for us? That you are, by your grace, working that story into us to change us, to make us a new creation, that we may reflect your goodness to all of those who come in contact with us. It is not more, or certainly it is more than this, but it is not less. And I pray that we would be a church that stays right here as we learn, as we travel further in this book of what it looks like to continue to have you work through us by your grace. Would you do that not just for us individuals here, this church, but would you do that for College Park? And would you do that for your church throughout all of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.